Hi everyone, this is Amanda Borchel Dan. And I'm Jessica Steinberg. Your host for Times Will Tell. A weekly podcast from the Times of Israel. Hi everyone, this is Amanda Borchel Dan. This week I'm so excited to share a conversation I had with author and journalist Andrew Lawler, who recently published the fabulous Under Jerusalem, the buried history of the world's most contested city. I absolutely devoured the book and highly recommend it to anyone interested in Holy Land history, archaeology, or even just tales of unbelievable but real characters. It's a real trip along the timeline of Jerusalem archaeologists spanning from the 1860s through today. We get a sense of the crazy people behind the digs, government involvement, and the sparks of geopolitical conflict that still simmer. Enjoy the conversation and go out and get this book. You won't be sorry. Hi, Andrew. Thank you so much for joining me. Where am I finding you today? Hi, Amanda. It's a pleasure to uh, be here. Uh, I'm in Asheville, North Carolina, in the uh, western part of uh, the state in the Appalachian Mountains. Wow. Very specific answer. And that makes sense because I've just finished your wonderful book, Under Jerusalem, which was so descriptive and so specific that I almost smelt Jerusalem through reading its pages. Well, coming from you, that's a real compliment. Thank you. I love this book. Tell our listeners just a little bit about its premise. Well, I write about archaeology and I've written about archaeology in the Middle East for many years. And I've visited Jerusalem, well, maybe six or seven years ago uh, to take a tour with uh, an archaeologist, Israel Finkelstein. And he introduced me to all these people who were working underground. And I became fascinated by what they were doing, particularly because as we toured these sites, they would point out tunnels and passages that had been dug by previous archaeologists back in the 19th century. And that I found fascinating because I knew almost nothing about uh, that group of people. So I started to research that and I realized that there's a history of archaeology in Jerusalem, a history of searching for the underground city that had not been fully told. I I have to gush. I, I'm so in love with this book and it reads like a swashbuckling adventure at first when we're definitely when we're in the more distant past of the archaeological adventures here in the holy city. And and now it, it goes all the way through to the contemporary period, which is very politically fraught, very violent at times, but it has everything. Every single chapter could be its own book. How did you boil it down and grab the essence of each of these eras for just their own single chapters. Now, that was the big challenge. Of course, there are so many books about the history of Jerusalem, and I knew I could not tackle that topic. So instead, I decided to just kind of keep it simple. Uh, find the characters, you know, the key people who were the ones who really unearthed the important uh, artifacts and architecture beneath the holy city. Uh, and that includes not actually not just archaeologists, but uh, people who are explorers, people who were looters, uh, people with all kinds of motivations to go beneath Jerusalem. So stitching those together, I began at the beginning, the first dig in 1863, all the way up until uh, 2018. I left uh I left Jerusalem just uh, about three months before the pandemic hit. Oh, wow. Amazing. And definitely in reading the entire book, it's very up to date. You have most of the science behind you that's of the recent finds. And and it's just fascinating to see how it all comes together. Now, I just want to ask, what 
was the source material, especially for the more historical chapters, because even your prose sounded like it came from that era when you're writing and describing the Jerusalem of yore. Well, there are so many places that I I had to go and search for uh, the the journals, the letters, uh, the books that had been written by the people who dug beneath Jerusalem, particularly in the 19th century. And uh, fortunately, uh, most of those were available. Even during the pandemic, I was able to find many things online uh, or to find them in the few libraries that were open. And uh, there's a massive material. You could spend your entire life reading just about what happened in Jerusalem in the 19th century. Uh, but I was lucky in being able to, to really pinpoint those people uh, who left behind uh, their memories, their uh, journals, about what took place. And also newspaper accounts were very important because there were many newspapers in Jerusalem, uh, both Hebrew and uh, Arabic newspapers and Yiddish newspapers uh, from the 19th century. And they were excellent sources because you could compare them uh, with one another so you could get a sense of what happened during particular events. As a journalist myself, I couldn't help but chuckle often at some of the headlines that you brought from the New York Times. Do you know what I'm talking about specifically? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, gone with the treasures of Solomon. Uh, yeah, certainly anything to do with Jerusalem tended to get headlines in the West, uh, in Europe and America. And that's part of the story because before the archaeologists began digging, before these explorers, I should say, because they weren't really proper archaeologists, began to excavate the Holy City, Jerusalem wasn't particularly well known. It was known as a, a place, uh, but it was more of a spiritual idea, both for Jews and Christians. And it was really these explorers who went beneath the city, discovered things, and the headlines are what attracted people, and then in turn brought tourists, both Jewish and Christian, from the West into Jerusalem. And so really, Jerusalem was made into the city it is today by these explorers. Now, some of your source material were women's voices, which I certainly appreciated. You brought in some diary accounts from certain women. Um, how did you come across these? Well, this was tough because, of course, most of the, the early explorers were men. Uh, there were very few women that I could find who were involved. But there were definitely uh, many interesting women, particularly in the 19th century, uh, who I found completely fascinating. Uh, Bertha Spafford Vester, for example, she was an American woman who came as a missionary, as a Christian missionary to Jerusalem. And she kept uh, this journal and she wrote a book about her time in Jerusalem. And she was really sharp. Nothing, nothing missed, missed her. And she watched as these archaeologists and explorers came and had some pretty uh, clear judgments about uh, the quality of their work. So people like that who were part of the social circles there uh, really gave me, a, 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 I think, a stronger sense of the community there, not just uh, the scientific results. Now, some of her accounts uh, included, uh, I think, donkey cart racing down an alleyway with large <laughs> cat calls at the same time, things of that nature. It just sounds like a circus. Yeah, and she was very upset when this particular uh, team that you're referencing was uh, led by a British aristocrat named Montague Parker, uh, who was looking for the Ark of the Covenant. She became very upset when she discovered that this team had arrived, large team with lots of money. They had failed to hire an archaeologist. <laughs> they had everybody else. They had a psychic. They had a Congo Steepo <laughs> captain. They had a, a theologian who believed he had cracked the code of Ezekiel to know where the treasures were from the temple. But they didn't have an archaeologist. So she put pressure on the local Arab notables, who then put pressure on the Turkish governor to force this uh, 
British aristocrat to hire an archaeologist. And in fact, they did a French monk uh, who lived in Jerusalem, who then was able to at least keep an eye on what they were doing to give it at least a little bit of a scientific sheen. It's just great. It's a great read. Just great reading. Now, some of the characters, most of the characters were men, but there were a few female characters that stand out, such as Kathleen Kenyon and Elat Mazar. But you didn't actually focus on these women as much as you did on the men, the male characters. Why is that? Well, that's a good question. I mean, Kathleen Kenyon uh, is now considered the most important field archaeologist of the 20th century. Uh, She was a British archaeologist who worked uh, in Jericho for a number of years, as well as later in Jerusalem. But I was focused strictly on Jerusalem, and her digs in Jerusalem were actually quite limited. She only worked there for, for two or three years before the 67 war, and after that, she left. Um, and the other, of course, Elat Mazar is uh, quite important. She unfortunately passed away last May, and she was really a seminal biblical archaeologist. Maybe you could almost call her the last of the great biblical archaeologists who dug with a Bible in one hand and a spade in, in the other. So she actually is, uh, I think, a quite an important character uh, in my book, particularly when it comes to her digs around what's called the City of David. Uh, and her contention that she found the Palace of David. Now, this is still quite controversial, and in fact, most archaeologists, both in Israel and abroad, don't accept her conclusion. Uh, But she certainly was a a very colorful figure with whom I I spent uh, many hours. We'll continue our conversation with author Andrew Lawler after this short break. Hey, it's Jessica Steinberg. If you have an important message you'd like to share with people who care deeply about Israel and the Jewish world, there's really no better way to do that than by advertising in our podcasts. Reach the Times of Israel's unique community with an audio ad. For more information, email ads at timesofisrael.com. That's ads at timesofisrael.com. We're back speaking with Andrew Lawler, author of Under Jerusalem, The Buried History of the World's Most Contested City. Now, let's talk about some of the even more colorful stories than what we've already discussed, uh, such as Ron Wyatt. Who is this man and what did he do in Jerusalem? So, as I mentioned, Jerusalem doesn't just draw archaeologists, doesn't just draw scientists. It also draws people who are, I would say, obsessed, (laughs) or you could say are victims of what's called Jerusalem syndrome, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Uh, Jerusalem is one of the few cities that has its own syndrome. And this syndrome particularly applies to American Protestants who arrive in the city full of their ideas of what Jerusalem is or should be, and uh, they seek out the the past that they've learned. They seek out the Bible that they learned in Sunday school. And Ron Wyatt was a classic case of this. Uh, he was a Tennessee preacher uh, from the United States who went to Israel and spent a, more than a decade digging in various places. Now, this was completely illegal because, of course, to dig, you have to have a license. And the Israeli Antiquities Authority was not about to grant a license to a Tennessee preacher who had no training in archaeology. But Ron was very charming, and he managed to convince people, including the people that run the Garden Tomb, which is uh, the site just north of the Old City uh, that many Protestants believe was the the actual site of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And so it's a very popular place. So he actually convinced the people there to allow him to dig. And in his account, he describes finding a tunnel and and creeping through a, a very narrow passage 
and coming into a larger space which contained not just the ark but all of the temple treasures and he believed that they had been secreted there and then Jesus had been crucified above and Jesus's blood had dripped down through a fissure created by the earthquake that took place according to the gospels during the crucifixion and the blood dripped on the ark of the covenant thereby kind of completing the connection between Jesus and the old testament uh, so he was obviously had a, a very strong point of view, believed he had actually found these treasures. And there are some blurry photographs, but uh, alas, uh, it turned out that um, he wasn't able to really show anybody that these treasures truly existed. Uh, but nevertheless, this became quite a, a cause celeb uh, in the United States. And he became uh, an important speaker. People from Australia and the United States and Europe would come to hear him speak and he really convinced many people that he, had, in fact, had found these uh, incredible treasures. Put a timestamp on that. When was that again? This was in the 1980s. Right. So recent, actually. Yes. I mean, this is, yeah, this is not in the 19th century. So that's another thing I found was that there's such a consistency that even though Jerusalem has changed uh, rulers, uh, faith, you name it, so much has changed in that city in the past century, yet some things remain strangely similar. And that is... The city still draws people who are amateurs, who are trying to find proof for their belief in the Bible uh, or in, in, in Scripture. So that's something that remains consistent up until today. So at almost the same time that Ron Wyatt was having his, uh, shall we say, uh, delusions, um, Rav Getz was having a buddy story with Rafi Etan, who was the former head of the Mossad, who found Eichmann, who brought him to justice. And Rav Getz was at that, at that time, I believe, the rabbi of the Western Wall. Is that correct? That's correct. So this is, uh, this is in the early 1980s again. And this is actually the same summer that Raiders of the Lost Ark, the famous Hollywood movie, uh, was released in the United States. Now, it didn't come out in Israel until about six months later. But while the movie was, was becoming a hit in the U.S., it was a, a true-life Indiana Jones effort going on beneath the Temple Mount. Uh, and except it wasn't uh, Harrison Ford, it was Rabbi Getz, uh, who was the head of the, the Western Wall, the rabbi of the Western Wall. And he um, one day reported in his, in his diary that a hole was found in the Western Wall Tunnel that led beneath the Temple Mount, or the Noble Sanctuary, as Muslims call it. And now this was strictly forbidden to go beyond that place, because there was an understanding between among the Jordanians, the United States, and Israel that that nobody that nobody would, would penetrate into the Temple Mount, because this was considered to be Muslim territory, and it was supposed to be left inviolate. Uh, but Getz uh, couldn't help himself. He said that this hole was created by accident. He was a little unclear about how it was created. And he, when he went inside, he found a chamber. It was a cistern that had once held water. And he believed that on the other side, he could penetrate through and reach the area beneath the Dome of the Rock. Now, there's a disconnect between his diary and what we know actually happened. And his diary clearly was doctored. Uh, it doesn't tell the full truth. So when I began to dig into uh, what actually happened with the help of uh, talking to people who were involved in the event, uh, finding some letters, uh, newspaper accounts, it turned out that in fact this was, this was an attempt not by a rogue rabbi to uh, find um, uh, a, or to create a synagogue beneath the Temple Mount, which is how it was presented officially. In fact, 
the Israeli government, senior officials in the Israeli government took part in this, Rafi Atan being one of the key figures, but also other senior members of the Israeli government were aware of what Getz was doing, and they supported him. And their true goal, I discovered, was in fact to find the Ark of the Covenant. And they believed it had been secreted beneath the Dome of the Rock. Uh, So, if they had continued to dig, then it's quite possible that they might have started a world war. Uh, but fortunately, the Israeli government shut the project down and the Muslim authorities, the, the Jerusalem Waqf, they were able to go in and block the cistern from uh, the Western Wall Tunnel where it remains separate today. But here's an example where this idea of finding the Ark of the Covenant might sound like a kind of a cute legend to some, but in fact, it has immediate and very important political ramifications in today's world. Now, that wouldn't have been the first time that archaeology in Jerusalem would have been a spark for creating a war, correct? Oh, no. There have been many instances. Well, I mean, one I can think of is maybe a dozen years after uh, Rabbi Getz uh, penetrated the Temple Mount, and that was when the Western Wall Tunnel was completed. It took 20, 30 years uh, to do this project. It was, you know, immense engineering undertaking. And the idea was, okay, we want to be able to open an entrance, an exit at the north end so that tourists can move through the tunnel from the Western Wall Plaza and then come out on the Via Dolorosa. Well, for Muslims, this was not a happy idea because for them, the tunnel already was... uh, considered intrusive. It was pa- it passed mainly beneath the Muslim quarter under some very important uh, ancient Muslim buildings. And the idea that all of these Jewish tourists would be pouring out into the Muslim quarter did not sit well with many Muslims in Jerusalem. So when one day, in fact, this was uh, one of Benjamin Netanyahu's first acts as uh, when he was first prime minister, uh, he opened this tunnel, uh, this exit, And the result was tremendous riots. More than 100 people were killed, thousands were injured, and really it marked the beginning of the end for the Oslo peace talks, which limped on for a number of years. But it really created such bad blood between the two that uh, the two-state solution kind of fell by the wayside in the process. I was giving you a leading question, and there's so many ways you could have taken up the answer. And one of them was the Crimean War as well, correct? Ah, yes. Yes, indeed. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, This is something that your listeners probably are less familiar with. And this is, it's fascinating because really in Jerusalem, the real controversy, the real uh, fights and arguments happened in the past, not between Jews and Muslims, not between even Jews and Christians, but among the Christians. The Christians were the ones who were constantly at each other's throats because in the Holy Sepulchre, for example, uh, every little piece of that building is divided up according to the various sects, whether it's Roman Catholic or Greek Orthodox or Armenian, uh, you name it. And every inch is accounted for. So any change in what's called the status quo can immediately provoke conflict. And this is what happened back in the middle of the 19th century, when in Bethlehem, uh, partly it has to do with Bethlehem, partly Jerusalem, but there was arguments among the uh, Greek Orthodox and the Roman Catholics as to to who owned what piece of the uh, Church of the Nativity and the Holy Sepulchre. And this became an immediate political war between the French, who were the ones who were the protected the Roman Catholics in Jerusalem, 
and the Russian czar, who saw himself as the head of the Greek and Russian Orthodox Church. And as a result, uh, the Crimean War broke out between uh, between the West and Russia, uh, leading to uh, you know all kinds of uh, terrible casualties and really disrupting the whole political system in the Middle East for many years. So there's an example where these minor events that seem almost uh, almost quaint uh, can actually spark real war. So that was an example of Christian and Christian uh, conflict. But if we zip forward again into much more contemporary era, you uh, you give a description of Jewish and Jewish uh, inner fighting, including secular versus religious, and this, of course, is going on until today. Yes, and, and this really was uh, started in the 1980s with uh, a dig that happened at what's called the City of David, where uh, the archaeologists were digging to find evidence of the the early days of uh, King David and Solomon. But Orthodox Jews decided that they actually had found Jewish tombs and were desecrating these tombs. And for a long time, there had been kind of a detente between Orthodox believers and more secular Zionists who were archaeologists who believed that, you know, digging up a tomb is okay because we get scientific data from it. But it was really in the 1980s where that came to a head. And these two groups began to uh, come into incredible conflict. And so this is the time when uh, Begin had a, uh, Prime Minister Begin had a, a very tenuous coalition. And this coalition really depended on having a few Orthodox parties in his coalition. And they said, no, we're not going to allow archaeologists to dig up these, these tombs. And so archaeology became uh, really this, this incredible uh, point of contention Uh, political contention within Israel. And uh, there was violence, there were riots, uh, there was a lot of uh, unhappiness, to say the least, between uh, the Orthodox on the one hand, or ultra-Orthodox, if you will, and Haredi, uh, versus the archaeologists who tended to be more secular. So this this showed a deeper split in Israeli society, of course, between those with a more religious bent and those of a more secular bent. We're going to take a short break now and come back to more from Andrew Lawler, author of Under Jerusalem. Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. Now, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be privileged to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. And we're back with journalist and author Andrew Lawler. 
Now, one of the more colorful characters that is still in the playing field is David Be'eri. So tell us a little bit about him, the head of El Ad. Yes, he's the head of El Ad, or as we say in English, the City of David Foundation. And I mean, you have to understand a little bit of the history at what's called the City of David, or for Muslims, it's the Wadi Hilwa neighborhood, part of Silwan. And it really was a place where mainly sheep grazed until the 19th century. And so its archaeological treasures remained sealed beneath. But then, uh, starting in the 1920s and 30s, uh, people started to move there, mainly uh, Arab Muslims, to build their homes. And this became a, a thriving village. Now, this continued well into the time of the Jordanians until 1967 and then beyond. But then in the 70s and 80s, uh, David Be'eri, as you mentioned, uh, he got an idea that, hey, this is the city of David. This is the original Jerusalem. And this should be a Jewish place rather than an Arab Muslim place. And so he founded this organization uh, along with a, a rabbi, and they began a, a kind of a two-pronged effort. One was to dig beneath this area to find the remains of the ancient Jewish past, and on the other hand, above ground, to try and bring Jewish settlers into the neighborhood so that this become uh, more of a Jewish place rather than an Arab Muslim place. And of course, this led to incredible conflict above ground. Now, that's kind of well known. What I found fascinating was the work that went on underground. That uh, So you had, you had this uh, relatively right-wing uh, Jewish believer who was funding these primarily secular archaeologists. So this is where that split between the secular archaeologists on the one hand and your more traditional Jewish believers actually started to come into sync they began to they began to work with one another, and this is important because it also I think reflects what was happening in the wider Israeli society. That is, you were finding uh, the the right and the left were beginning to uh, realign themselves. So underground, there were these tremendous discoveries that were happening, uh, but at the same time, you were having violence above ground. Plus, uh, Muslims were really unhappy with uh, having these massive digs going on beneath their homes. And they, they claim, and they still claim to this day, that the tunneling and the uh, trenches that had been dug have unsettled their homes as well as threatened their heritage. Which is not a new claim. And of course, Charles Warren had this claim made against him and in any place where there's excavation. <laughs> Again, that's this is one of the fascinating stories, threads that I found throughout this book was that from the beginning, you had people who, actually live in, in a neighborhood complaining that the archaeologists were harming them uh, in many ways. So that has not changed, even if the, the actors have changed. And it seems like there's still this uh, semi-colonialist atmosphere in terms of who is doing the excavation versus who is being perhaps allegedly at least harmed by it. It was interesting to note that. I think what's particularly unique about Jerusalem, and this is kind of stepping outside of the immediate politics, is that in right now in archaeology, there's a big move to include local people, to uh, have them working on digs, to have them participate uh, in a meaningful way in the excavation, since it's their heritage too. Uh, it's where they live. And in Jerusalem, of course, that is very much not the case, mostly because of this political divide. So, you know, you see archaeology taking one course in most of the world, uh, but in Jerusalem, it still remains 
rather trapped, I think, in uh, the political reality of the moment. Now, another, uh, shall we say, technique that is somewhat out of fashion, but is still being used in Jerusalem is the idea of horizontal excavation. Can you explain about this a little bit? Yeah, so uh, back in the beginning of archaeology in the 19th century, it seemed like an obvious way to get information and to find artifacts was to dig a tunnel. Uh, it was cheaper, you could just dig right through. Um, basically, you're, you were mining, mining for treasure. And that fell out of favor by the end of the 19th century because archaeologists realized in order to understand, to, to actually get meaningful data, you start from the top, you dig down, and as you go down, you go through the layers, you can date them, you can relate objects to one another, and that's actually the proper way to do archaeology. And that today is considered standard. Now, in a very, very few cases, tunneling uh, has been done, places like Rome, uh, where to dig above was too difficult. Uh, but it's really in Jerusalem that tunneling has continued for all of this time. And archaeologists have kind of accepted that Jerusalem is the great exception and tunneling is okay. Now, the big tunnel that's going on that's being built now uh, is uh, beneath the city of David or beneath Wadi Hilwa that's exposing the uh, so-called pilgrimage road, this Roman-era monumental street that went from the Pool of Siloam all the way up to the Temple Mount. And this is an astonishing project. I mean, it's a subway tunnel, basically, that goes up the ridge you know, beneath mainly Muslim Arab homes. So, of course, it's immensely contentious, it's incredibly expensive, and the science really is questionable. Now, the archaeologists maintain that, no, we've learned how to do it, we can use computer programs to, to understand the layers, but you're still digging essentially without peripheral vision. So it remains uh, controversial, not just for the politics, not just for the engineering, but also for the science. While you were writing this book, what era were you most fascinated by? Oh, that's a tough call. Uh, but I'd have to say it was that period right before World War I. That's when everything began to gel. That's when you had real archaeologists showing up in Jerusalem and really coming up with some, some important finds. That was also the, the moment when uh, Jewish archaeologists first made their appearance. Uh, you had Raymond Weil, who was working with uh, uh, in a project funded by Baron Edmund de Rothschild to find the Ark of the Covenant. And I find that period most interesting because it was really the time of a competition between the Christians and the Jews to find the temple treasures. Now, of course, Neither of them found anything of that sort, but it really kind of started this fascinating contest to see who could find the world's most sacred treasures. And of course, the British team, uh, led by Montague Brownlow Parker, this uh, British aristocrat who had this crazy team that did not include an archaeologist at first, you know, his efforts to find the temple treasures and sell them on the art market infuriated the Jews of Europe, who said, this is our heritage. What are you doing trying to dig it up and sell it? So in many ways, that's the period where you have the, uh, the setup, if you will, for the Jewish desire to return to Jerusalem and claim not just the city, but also what lay beneath it as fundamental to Jewish identity. After the foundation of the state, obviously, Israeli archaeologists tried to find Jewish roots in all of their excavations. And you touch on this slightly towards the end of the book about the Palestinians' drive to do the same thing. Can you expand on that a little bit? One of the most fascinating things I learned in the course of my research and interviews was that for Palestinians, they had a very different view of what lies beneath the city. For them, yeah, it makes sense to dig for treasure, for water, you know, for practical things. 
But it didn't make sense in, in that culture to dig for your heritage because you were your heritage. To go to the mosque was part of your heritage. To expand a mosque, to dig down maybe to, to expand uh, your home in order to accommodate more children, that was part of your heritage. So there was this real disconnect between this Western idea, both Jewish and Christian, to uh, seek your heritage by digging in someone else's backyard and uh, this Palestinian uh, Arab view that it doesn't make sense. It's a disconnect if you feel like you don't live your heritage. So this is what really, I think, created this disconnect between Palestinians and, uh, and Israeli Jews when it comes to how to look for your past, how to understand your past, and how to make meaning of that past. And of course, one of the conflict zones surrounding Jerusalem archaeology is when the Palestinians decided to dig deeper because they needed more room. And I'm, of course, talking about the Solomon's Stables uh, episode. Briefly, what is this about and, and what is happening today with the dart? that is taken from there. Right. So at the, the, at the end of the Oslo Peace Accords, at the end, I guess it was around 2000, the Muslim Waqf that is in charge of the Noble Sanctuary of the Temple Mount, they decided they wanted to open up a new entrance into what had become the Marwani prayer space, what had been Solomon Stable, this vast, huge area on the southeast corner of the Temple Mount. And this was done, uh, uh, this was agreed to with the Israeli government, because you can't bring heavy equipment onto uh, that that sacred platform without having approval from the Israeli government. But the government didn't inform the archaeologists, didn't inform the Israeli Antiquities Authority. So by the time the bulldozers had done their work to open this area up, the damage had been done and the dirt had been hauled away. Now, archaeologists, both Palestinian and Israeli archaeologists, were infuriated by this. Allowing this to happen without proper archaeological supervision was certainly a crime. Uh, but it was a crime that uh, the Israeli government has to shoulder a good deal of burden uh, because they're the ones that ultimately gave it approval. And in the end, that dirt was taken to the dump. An Israeli group created the Temple Sifting Project, Gabriel Barkai being uh, one of the esteemed archaeologists who was working on that. And they found lots of material, but it's still a question. How valuable is it? Because when you take these objects out of their context, you jumble them, you lose their meaning. It becomes very hard. They become nice objects, but they don't necessarily tell you a clear story. So there's a big debate now in the community as to whether this temple sifting project actually makes any scientific sense. Certainly they're finding interesting things, but whether Gabi is correct in some of his assumptions about finding materials from the, the Second Temple, for example, is really a big debate. We don't know for sure if that soil, if that dirt had been brought in maybe 10 centuries earlier uh, and used as fill to cover up that space. So we don't really know enough to say for sure uh, what that material is. Now, obviously, no excavation is taking place right now on what I would call the Temple Mount or anywhere near it. But you do mention some young Palestinian archaeologists in your book, one who specifically did not want to be named when you were writing about the Solomon Stables. And I wonder, in your opinion, is there any window of opportunity that even Palestinian archaeologists will do some kind of excavating on the Temple Mount? Well, certainly there has been, there have been digs on the top of the city's Acropolis. Whenever you have to put in a, a sewer line, whenever you have to put in new electrical, that requires some digging. So actually, there have been several digs, very small digs, uh, that have been done. So whenever you dig there, you have to have archaeological supervision. And generally, that has been the case. They've been pretty minor, and their finds have been unclear. 
And I don't think that it's it's likely that we're going to see major ex, major archaeological excavations uh, beneath the Acropolis. It just is too contentious, too controversial, and in fact was one of the one of the central reasons why the Oslo peace accords failed, because the Israelis and the Palestinians could not agree on how to handle what is beneath the sacred space. So we can't think just of science. Like, sure, it'd be nice to have that information, but the thing is, in Jerusalem, you can't ignore politics, you can't ignore religion. If you do, you do it at your own cost. 100% have to agree with you. Now, just to close out, who was your particular favorite character when you were writing this book? Oh, that's so hard. Um, you know, each one, I think, reflects a different aspect of the Jerusalem syndrome. The first guy, Felicien de Zossi, this Frenchman, you know, he's a Catholic who is a strong believer who really wants to find the ancient Judean tombs and completely misreads the inscriptions he finds, completely is wrong about so much. Um, you know, he was just such a jerk, frankly. And then you have Charles Warren, who is this British uh, excavator who is a Mason. And I found out that that actually, that explained a lot of his drive to understand what was beneath the Holy City. So for me, each of the characters that I found seemed to show a different aspect, a different piece of why people from all over the world, not just not just Jews, not just Muslims, find Jerusalem so incredibly fascinating. And as somebody who lives near Jerusalem, has lived in Jerusalem, reading your book made it all the more fascinating for me. And just thank you so much for writing this. Well, it's a great compliment. I appreciate it very much. And it's been a pleasure chatting. Pleasure for me too. Thank you so much. Ta-da. Thanks so much for listening to Times Will Tell from the Times of Israel. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein. Please subscribe wherever you find your podcast and check out our daily briefing news show every Sunday through Thursday. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. Until next week. Shalom. Shalom.